0: The Recovery Executive Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment facilities. Today we are talking with Amy Kelly, uh, formerly Amy Wilson. Many of you might know her from her previous positions uh, by her name, but she's now Amy Kelly. And so I'm very happy to have her on the show today. She is the Senior Vice President of Business Development for Promises Behavioral Health, which is still one of the largest treatment providers in the country um, with facilities across the U.S. And so she's got a large team and she came in to a company that had gone through a very difficult bankruptcy and she had come in to rebuild that team. And she has successfully, as you'll hear about in this episode, done a lot to bring a team that was underperforming to a team that is one of the highest producers uh, in the country right now. Before we get into that, of course, I want to hear from our wonderful sponsors, Soberlink. Professionals like those that listen to the Recovery Executive Podcast know that technology-assisted care is improving all aspects of healthcare. Addiction treatment is no different. Soberlink is an accountability tool that's helped thousands of people in early recovery. If you haven't heard of Soberlink, it's a discreet alcohol monitoring system with real-time results and reports. You can improve your client's outcomes with the latest technology recommended by four out of five treatment providers. For a limited time and for Recovery Executive Podcast listeners, you can get a free Soberlink device by visiting www.soberlink.com slash free. As always, I appreciate Andy and all those guys and his team over there at Soberlink. Uh, it's a great product. and. I hope that some of you out there are using it. Um, As always, you can definitely connect with that link provided there um, to get that special offer. So we're speaking with Amy today, and there's two focuses to the conversation. So one is the traditional that everyone talks about around business development, that being uh, metrics, accountability, and KPIs. This is probably what we always hear about from the business development side of things is at the end of the day they're often talking about number of admissions per business development rep Um, we get much deeper into that like all of the conversations that we have on this podcast There's often much, much more to kind of going down channel and looking at um, different steps in these processes and different steps in actions that lead to outcomes that we want that are very important to understand in terms of creating um, effective processes and training people in the right way and getting the outcomes that ultimately we're desiring. So we go into a lot of that, but much more importantly, and what really um, Amy and I connected on a while back and why I wanted to have her on the show, not just because she's doing such an amazing job building the team over there and her team is performing higher than the vast majority of business development teams that are out there right now. But because one of the reasons for that is her focus on culture, Uh, her sales team culture and promises, behavioral health culture in particular, This is something that I have consistently seen um, working in smaller organizations, working for large organizations like Disney. When I'm running those organizations or when I am helping support other organizations build theirs, I see this issue of sales culture come up quite consistently. And most organizations are really bad at it because what most organizations do is they focus on the accountability and the metrics piece and they are just interested in that outcome. Did you meet your sales quota? Did you meet your stretch goal? Yes or no. Right. But high performing teams come from a culture that is driven by something more than the numbers. And this is tricky for a lot of organizations and in particular executives and managers because there's a lot of pressure for short term results. And so they tend to hire people that thrive on short term results and deliver it almost at any cost. What I've seen consistently is that when you do that, you basically drive up costs in your organization and you lose customers over time. And the reason that happens is because there's often a strong tension between the sales team and the rest of the organization and we see that quite clearly between clinical and bd teams at a number of facilities right so i think that's common probably to everyone that's listening and they've had that experience and that tension creates turnover it creates conflict it creates problems um, driven by a, a sales team or a business development team that's focused just on the numbers and they'll do anything to get it um you know in some way shape or form On the other side is the customer side. And how many times do you have complaints where the person comes into the facility and was told something by the BD rep that turns out not to be true. I've seen this again and again in what I consider to be low performing sales teams. So even if they hit their quota, what they're doing is they're killing us on the back end. Because that customer had a bad experience, that customer goes and writes online reviews, that customer goes and tells all his friends and family um, what happened and that he's not going to come into the organization or that he's not going to recommend it. And then even on the, um, obviously on the addiction treatment side of things, you'll see AMAs rise because of that and you'll get less days. Um, So there's all these, this host of problems that come in when you're focused on just the numbers. So Amy and I have a really good conversation. I love Amy's insights on the value of building a culture that's centered around patient care and that's extended very intentionally to the sales team and how that culture that's been built around the sales team and promises as a whole has facilitated their ability to drive much better results than the vast majority of treatment centers are getting right now. So I hope you find uh, a lot of value in this conversation. I know I did, let's jump in. Appreciate you coming on the show here. Do you wanna tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure, thanks Nick. First off, thank you for having me. Um, I'm grateful to be a part of this process. I appreciate you asking me to join. Um, I, my name is Amy Wilson, and I have been in the behavioral health field since 2008. Uh, I started on the ground level doing intake paperwork at a detox facility, so that's where my love of the science of addiction came in. I, I had an opportunity to work with a physician and nurses, and our our focus was on the physical detox piece of substance use. So from there, I worked in business development, and I worked my way up uh, from an outpatient um, business development rep to a residential rep. I had a national position as, a, as an account executive and then I stepped into my first management role. Um, I started with one direct report. I then built a team and managed a business development team before I stepped into leadership. So I left my last company as the director of business development and I am currently the vice president of business development for Promises Behavioral Health.
0: That's right i think we originally met when we were engaging some consulting for foundations and you were running the team there and then as we've kind of moved over to continue support you know promises we've also been connecting again a little bit and I, one of the reasons i wanted to reach out to you and have you on the show was just some of the amazing work that you've obviously been doing and uh i don't know how much you want to kind of go into the details but the business development team was not necessarily performing uh, as well as they could right when you originally came over and now you've tripled or quadrupled performance right and so that was one of the things i kind of wanted to talk about and then something interesting that we had had a conversation on was the importance of culture in all of this and how uh culture as a focus was actually one of the things that you felt was a big driver for this increase in performance so why don't we start there and kind of talk about how you think you've been able to have that huge increase with your team and how the culture component fits in?
1: Right, I appreciate that. you know, I wish I could take all the credit. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there for, gosh, we're going on nine months. And um you know, part of the history of our company is I came in after um, we had gone through a bankruptcy. and so, coming into that type of environment, they really brought me in to uh, move the needle forward. They didn't need people to check off boxes anymore. They really wanted me to come in and and really drive business forward. And so part of what I inherited on the team was that they had very little accountability um, and very low goals. They just didn't have a, a very high expectation placed on them. So um, when my boss came on board, she set the stage for me. She came on in April uh, a couple months before I came on and um, she really set the stage that we were going to increase the expectations on the team. And so I think that was part of the success is that instead of coming in and saying, you know, we're going to change everything around and we've got these higher expectations, we allowed them time to process through uh, what that was going to look like. And we increased their goals gradually so gradually we increased i think they had an expectation of three admissions Um, and we increased month over month we would just increase it by one at a time knowing the whole time that by january 1st of 2020 we were going to be up to where we needed to be to to uh to meet our budgetary goals so um i think between that and just bringing in new energy the the team had been through tremendous change and there was a lot of fear the culture in place Um, the old team uh, struggled uh, with it. They felt like they couldn't speak up and they didn't have a voice. So uh, we came in just deciding that we wanted to get to know people and really move them through in a a calm, compassionate way um, to change the the culture of of the the facility and and the team. You know, I, I think culture is the most important thing there is at a company great culture is the thing that makes everything else possible and i really believe that i've been i've been known to say in meetings that culture eats strategy for lunch um you know i think it 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 allows you to attract the best talent it it allows you to build the best teams it provides an environment where employees can grow and thrive and they want to be and they want to stay they want to invite their friends um so they do you know they you get good recommendations for good people when you have good people um, they start to trust the company. And that gives them some some more, it gives them additional responsibility. But I think that breeds some more creativity, which people need in their lives and their jobs. So I, I think the culture is what defines all of the unspoken rules at a company. And it sets the stage for growth and development. Um, because I, I really believe that your, your customers won't love a company in, until your employees love it first. So that's what we have been trying to build over the last nine, nine months. And so there's a lot of positive momentum. There's a lot of celebration, It's to be honest, it, it's the most fun I've had at a, in a long time at a job because the, the team and the facility, everybody's on board. We're all moving in the same direction.
0: So can you go a little bit deeper here? One of the things that we talked about and that I really thought was um, impactful was the fact that you talked about having a patient first mentality from a culture standpoint in your meetings. You mentioned accountability, And I think accountability is pretty common with business development teams. There's actually a very high level of expectations that they deliver a certain number of referrals or admissions, you know, per month. Yet I can tell you, you know, from just all of our work that most teams underperform, frankly, right? Before we start coming in. So what about that patient first mentality do you think had an impact on performance or if there was other um, things, you know, please elaborate.
1: So i don't know as much on this team but i have seen that that conversation about budget and numbers and metrics i, I do think that impacts the team the whole company i think it impacts people negatively because because frankly the business development team for the most part people that i've met in that job they're, they're not doing it for a to, to meet a budget goal they're, they're not doing it to meet a numbers goal even though a lot of folks in business development are in sales they're competitive they like they're high achievers um, in my experience, most of the folks that I've worked with are, are really doing the job because they want to help people. Um, and so when you are constantly talking about metrics and metric-driven performance, it, it sucks the the energy and the soul out of the work that they're doing. And, and I think it actually demotivates people. I, I have sat in boardrooms with leadership teams that... That only talked about the numbers and they only talked about the spreadsheets and the budgets and where we were missing and what we needed to do and and the patient was lost in that and and i think you need that the why of what you do i think that the patient should always come first and i think if you come from that perspective the the teams have more belief in you as a leadership team and you don't lose your way you're not putting money in front of a patient you're truly making good decisions about um, the company that it do positively impact the culture so you know I I think that the the culture is that's part of defining the culture for me and that's the kind of company I want to work for where they really do have that purpose that higher purpose to what they're doing I think that's really important and I think the reps need that to stay motivated
0: yeah I love that and I saw a comment I want to make that you know you can follow up with is what we see when there's a just a focus on strict numbers that's when we see all the BS around people lying to patients, right? You know, patient will ask, well, can I have my phone the whole time? And the person will be like, yeah, yeah, no problem. They don't even really know if they can or not. They don't bother to check. They just tell them what they want to hear because all that matters to them is that person going into the treatment facility and then they're a number, right? But when you talk about having an objective about putting the patient first and helping the patient do what's best for them, that completely changes that conversation. The right people get into the facility, but it also builds reputations, right, with that individual in the communities that they're operating in. And people know that they're going to put their loved one first, or they're going to put, you know, themselves first, um, if they're the ones that need the help. And that's huge. And there's so much value there. Whereas if you do it the other way, you end up with a bad reputation, you end up with bad online reviews all the time, you know, it just creates this negative cycle and experience it's, it's, it's not the kind of people you want on the team, right? I don't want someone on my team that will do, will get somebody to treatment at any cost, right? If that means even lying to them, I want someone on the team that is 100% committed to helping people, you know, and then they're going to be upright and honest and transparent in order to help that person. You know, that's just, that's what I want, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it also falls in line. I've seen um, companies that put their activity goals so high that there was a focus on, it became more about the the quantity than the quality. And when you do that to a team and you don't allow them the time they need to, to actually, you know, do the job um, and you just want them to, you know, get to the numbers piece of it and, and check it off a box. Um, it, it I, I've seen that where, where you, you know, reps are being dishonest. I've told, I've been told by reps that they just they're just writing it down that they're doing it because they need to save their job, right like it it's it puts them in a whole different state of mind because they're just hanging on at that point so yeah our focus is really on on quality over quantity um and again that speaks to the culture i mean i and i believe that culture is established through the core values of a company that's to me those are the unspoken rules of engagement right I, and it, that's a very simplistic view but but I think it's true. I mean, I think if you have really strong, well-established core values, like the ones you were talking about, um, I think those are key because those are the values that are gonna determine what your employees are gonna do when you're not in the room with them. Um, And if you've ever had a boss or an employee or a leadership team that didn't have the same value system that you have, you know how stressful and uncertain that work environment can be. So we're trying to get away from that. We're trying to set really strong core values for our team and have that be the basis of the culture um, and then allow people the dignity of, of walking through that and, and um, doing what they need to do to be successful in their jobs.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, I mean, I don't think people realize how important it is, but I mean, every single marketing engagement we have with the client, every consulting engagement we have, core values is the primary piece that we're starting with, right? We're like, what's the clinical program? What are the core values of you as an organization? And that's going to define everything else. But for most organizations, they don't have any, there's been nothing set in place. And so there's just a lot of confusion. There's a lack of direction. You know, when your employees have a goal that they're working for, like helping patients, just, you know, make it really simple. They're, they're not going to focus on the task, right? They're not going to focus on putting the report in Salesforce because that's not what they see their job as. They see their job as helping people. And so they're going to find creative ways to do that because they have a very clear objective in place, you know, above and beyond just being task oriented.
1: Absolutely. Well, and I think you bring up a good point because you can lead from where you are. So when when I came in, we have a corporate structure and we have a mission statement and a value statement that are beautiful, by the way. Um, But we on our I knew what we needed as as our unit, as our team. Um, And so this is something that um, we came up with or I came up with just for our team. I think it doesn't it doesn't mean that they're silos. We work very well with the other departments, but this is something for our business development team. Um, you know, our team culture, our team values, um, because we needed it. So I think that brings up something else: is that if you're not getting it from your senior leadership, you can still lead from where you are. You can still create the culture that you need to on your team, which I think is really important. That's how you, make, you That's how you retain good employees, um, you know, and build and build a good company.
0: Right. Yeah, and something else uh, that I think is important and I've done this for a long time in the sales and marketing roles that I've been in, right, is focus on collaboration. And we have a goal in the place, like helping patients. We're gonna collaborate to work together to help people. Whereas if you just put the numbers solely on um, accountability around numbers and metrics, people will often compete with each other and fight, right? I'm not going to answer the phone for this person who is technically your lead or your referral because it doesn't count for my numbers. Whereas if I'm thinking, how do I help people? Well, we're gonna work together to get this patient treatment, right? And it just ends up being very positive for your organization.
1: Absolutely. And that comes down to how how you're incentivizing or what you're incentivizing as well. Um, I've certainly worked at organizations where let's say the admission center, they were um, incentivized um, in a different way than the business development team was possibly. So I do think those things, you need to look at those things and make sure that everybody's aligned and because it can cause issues and problems so yeah that's why i believe those core values for our team are exactly what it, what it comes down to because if we do have those conversations and somebody got a call or somebody's working on somebody else's referral um yeah i want them to step up because we have a team culture that helps support each other and and uh and i think that's important
0: right you know you've probably been part of organizations like this too but we've gone into a number of organizations where entire management meetings are just spent bickering about who gets you know, points or who gets credit for such and such admission. So rather, you have all these people in the room getting paid quite a bit of money, right? And no progress was made, no strategy decisions were made. The entire discussion was, well, well we should get credit for this one because we were the first touch point or we should get credit for it because we were the last person they talked to. You know, it just, it just devolves into um, a fairly unproductive conversation.
1: Well absolutely and and thankfully, we don't have that culture um, at at promises where I'm at we've got a, a, really a culture of collaboration um, but I think part of that comes from just the the uh, the idea that you know if you're coming from a place of abundance, um, people react differently than when the numbers are down and people are stressed out and and they're concerned about their jobs. Um, and they start reacting differently and responding differently. And everybody starts to become very selfish with what they're doing and, and it, it comes out of fear, right? I mean, we all wanna be relevant in our jobs and our lives and this year and next year and 10 years down the road. Um, but it is, it's, it's an interesting dynamic as opposed to stepping back and saying, it doesn't really matter. Um, and you know, there's pressure that is put on the executive directors because they're, they're trying to do what they need to do as well. And so we've had to navigate through that um the relationships that um, are cultivated from a facility perspective and from the facility of relationships versus a business development one so um, again we're a work in progress we continue i think every day to get closer to where we want to go um, but i think it's a really good point
0: So we're talking a lot about culture here and the importance of having meaningful goals, you know, the why um, that's important to people. But obviously, like as you mentioned in the beginning, that that accountability is really important. So how do you look at KPIs and metrics? What are you using for your team that's important for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. We need and we have activity metrics um, that support really productivity and accountability. And to be honest the the way those are set up is that they're set up to be as open and achievable as possible And, and i don't do that because i'm trying to set the bar low by any means um they're very reasonable goals but we set those goals up as a minimum requirement because um one of our core values on our team is that we have a high performance culture and in a high performance culture it's an unspoken expectation that you exceed your goals not just meet them so we want to be you know we want to keep in mind that not every off member it's going to be 100 100 of the time so the goals allow for flexibility um they're designed to provide a framework but they're they don't they're not they're, they're not intended to limit the reps in their roles they're really designed for for quality like i said in that quantity um the the uh which we had talked a little bit about being a strength based company and so those goals allow the team to have as much autonomy as they can in their jobs um, because i really want the reps to do what more of what works for them uh, which is different in every region with every rep
0: so you're saying there's these differences so how do you go about setting goals with your team do you have individual and team goals and you know how is that is that a collaboration how does that work out
1: we do um we have ind- individual team company regional national the great thing about promises in a company as a whole is that every department knows and contributes to the goals so we all win and we all lose together um you know our ceo says that we all carry the same size or which i love uh because um the you know while we know historically where our admissions are going to come from um just based on how things are distributed uh we all take ownership of the results so the 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 goals are based on a couple things. Um, they're based on the uh, the we back into it. So we've got our budget goals. We know um, historically how many um, admissions we can expect per rep, and so we we staff our team accordingly. Um, and that's really how we back into it. And we don't we don't spend a ton of time on the individual goals. There's an expectation of a floor that the team has to meet within a certain time of starting with us. And then after that, we really focus on mastery goals that we we move away from the metrics, even though we talk about them, everybody knows where we're going. Um, But we, we move more toward a mastery and understanding and mastery goals rather than metric goals.
0: So can you explain that? What's the difference between a mastery goal and a metric goal?
1: Yeah. So mastery goals are really focused on learning objectives and metric goals are really focused on numbers. So if you think about a mastery goal, it's really concerned with self-improvement, building new skills, um, new competencies. So it's the difference between if I said, go set up 15 meetings each week, that would be a metric-driven goal, versus me challenging someone to create a coded calendar system that keeps track of setting appointments in their prospecting calls. Um, The latter would be a skill that would continue to develop with the employee. It would help with their efficiency, time management, call writing, all that stuff um but the former is a relatively empty goal you know the reward of getting those 15 meetings would be accomplishing that task they can check it off the box it doesn't really translate it into anything bigger um and the, the studies show that you get more engagement long-term engagement if you um teach and and get people uh thinking about mastery goals in a different way than just metrics
0: sure Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned it briefly before, but you talked about strength-based coaching. Um, so how does that come into your perspective when you're training up your reps?
1: So, you know, I had to learn this through trial and error because there was a, there was a point, especially as an individual contributor, that um, I could only see things through my perspective. And if it worked for me, I tried to teach it to the reps. And so what I learned um, when I started managing teams is that, um, not everybody's going to be able to do it the way that I did it or, or want to do it the way that I did it. Um, so one of the things I started doing with underperforming reps is, is to stop. I asked them to stop looking at what isn't working, because if you got somebody, have somebody that's not performing, they tend to spend a lot of time on what's not working. In fact, I've seen a lot of managers spend a lot of time on what's not working. Um, uh, so what I have them do usually is, is I, I have them. Take me through the process. We back into it. We dissect the accounts and what's working for them. Um, who has referred? Why are they referring? What's the common ground? What we look at the type of account, the relationship, all the variables. Um, are they referring back to us? Um, I asked a, a rep a couple weeks ago, "Do they know your family? Like, like how deep is this relationship?" We were just in course of conversation, and um, you know she was discovering, "Oh, it, it's the nuances that make this successful." account successful, make the referring accounts refer. Um, Again, it's not always the big stuff. Sometimes it's those smaller things. So I go back and have them really outline, this is the the roadmap that's already worked for me. And and to be honest, I tell them to do more of that. That I see is a a strength-based coaching approach. It helps alleviate those bigger fears about somebody failing, somebody not losing their job. Um, And in terms of philosophy, it's that idea from a strength-based perspective, they say that it's much harder to improve on your weaknesses. It's much easier. You can make much more progress if you're improving on your strengths. So we look at that. We want our reps to feel like they're making progress. The last piece of that is we do have a philosophy that, that is based on progress. So as long as I see progress in a rep, um, we keep moving. We keep teaching. We keep getting, trying to get them to a point where they are successful because at the end of the day, that's what they want to
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we see it a lot, too, even when we go in and do a business development training or an onboarding process, you'll have certain reps that just they don't understand the clinical component at all. Right. And rather than trying to teach them all the clinical jargon and the philosophies and the modalities and all that kind of stuff, it's like, well, actually, let's why don't we just look at what you're good with you know, maybe you have ins with the music community, or maybe you're really good reaching out to union workers, you know, whatever it is, let's focus on that strength rather than spend a bunch of time trying to have you go out and meet with clinicians and therapists. Um, that's just that's just not gonna be good for anybody.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and we have that too. We've got, we've structured our team. So we've got reps that specialize in different areas. You know, we've got our clinicians that work with clinicians and EAPs and hospitals and treatment centers and and, um, and such. So. We do that as well, Um, but I do think, because it can be a challenge when you've got somebody that on the outside looking in, um, they've got the right, right account mix, they've got the messaging down, their call routing is where it needs to be, but they're still not seeing the results. That can be a really challenging situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you kind of brought that up. So obviously you're the vice president of business development for the entire you know country for promises. You've got reps across the country. How do you structure that team? Do you structure it by geographies? Is it by buckets about what they're good at? You know, what have you found works for you?
1: So we have the country divided into four regions and we have four directors, um, one over each region. And then the reps will report up through those directors. Those four directors then report to me. Um, the the team is you know when I came on board the the team all of the individual contributors had one of three titles, um and that really just specified what type of specialty um they were in so we had our territory ter- they call them territory managers um and then we had our hospital reps and then our national reps so um, we we have adjusted the titles somewhat. Um, but the the sentiment is still there. We still are hiring in certain regions and certain markets for specifically hospital reps, folks that will will not solely focus on hospitals, but that's really mainly what they're doing. Um, and then we do the same thing in other markets. It really the market really dictates some of that um because we know what works best. You know, it has to be within a certain, radius of the facility. And, and there's a special skill set that a hospital rep would need. Same thing with clinicians or EAPs or whatnot. So it really depends on, again, the, the strength of the, of the candidate coming in. And we tease all of that ahead of time. I mean, we hire very specific people if they're working long distance further away from a, from a facility. That's something that we, um, we have very kind of specific criteria that we look for, uh, because that's a different job is to sell treatment when you don't live near a facility. Um, So, you know, does that help answer that question, the way that we're structured?
0: Yeah, I think that's super helpful. And then in terms of having that facility in your backyard, I mean, we've seen that pretty consistently where it's just a lot easier to um, get people into treatment if it's closer, right? And if you have a facility nearby, but I'm curious as to what you've seen in your role, if that's similar in your own experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, most reps will tell you that they prefer to have a, a local facility if they can, you know, they feel like that's an advantage, but I'll, I'll tell you, it is not a guarantee of success. I've certainly seen reps that had more than one facility um, and weren't successful in their in their uh, position. So what I really believe is that the best reps can sell treatment no matter where the facilities are. Um, it is definitely harder to do. It takes a different skill set. There's definitely an art to it. But we have several team members that do it every day. Um, in fact, some of our highest performing reps, are any, they're nowhere near a facility. So, you know, and some, sometimes that that has to do with the territory that they're in, um, the culture of the territory that they're in, what's happening in the industry. A lot of those things um, can actually be advantageous to getting somebody and um, more willing to travel for treatment. I, You know, I think the thing is, the challenge is not just to convince a, a client to travel for treatment. The, the new laws are also limiting our ability to get referral sources to our to our centers. So the, the reps need to get really creative about introducing our facilities, um, having them really understand intimately what we do enough that they'll trust us to send those patients. That's, that's the key as well. So you've got kind of those two pieces that they have to navigate through, but I think the best reps consult treatment, no matter where they are.
0: Interesting um and then i know that one thing that promises has done in particular has really made a strong move to um, address primary mental health as well as addiction how do you think that has kind of contributed to um, rep performance and ability to connect people to quality treatment
1: well i absolutely believe we have a distinct advantage um over especially over our competitors that don't offer mental health primary you know, our patients across the country, um, and it's been a long time coming, but the patients are more and more acute every day. And we can take patients that that a lot of our competitors are turning away. Um, it, allow- it, it Honestly, it allows us to work with our competition. Um, and some of that in the treatment field had gone away. There was a time where treatment centers work with treatment centers. We collaborated with our competition. And... Um, and when the, there was a downturn in the industry, that really changed um, if you were a substance abuse pr- or substance use primary facility. So um, I, I do think we have significantly more challenges selling programs that are substance use primary because with substance use, there's, there's more competition, there's more resources available for patients. I mean, it can be more more difficult to differentiate ourselves from the competitors, especially in the markets that are saturated uh, with business development folks and representation. But um, the and the consolidation i would say of of substance abuse facilities that's impacted our ability to maintain some of those referral partners so the mental health option allows us a distinct advantage um, from a business development perspective because we can work with hospitals we can continue to collaborate collaborate with our competition there's things that we can do there um, that you can't there's patients that we can treat that others just can't treat
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense Um, just kind of digging into the numbers a little bit, you know, on your end, what have you seen be successful for reps? You know, is there like a minimum account number that you think that they should have of people that they're working with or what, what do you kind of set as that metric of just kind of a baseline, um, baseline for, for performance?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I, we expect our reps to average, um, eight admissions a month. That's the floor. So, um, the and that has been that has was born out of uh, years of just anecdotal experience and watching what teams were doing and um and we've landed on that um like i said when we started the reps were averaging i believe less than three admissions per and we ended the year just under eight so it was like 7.8 or something per rep um and I think part of that too is the culture. Like I talked about, a high-performance culture. When you set expectations, when you set the bar high, and you you tell your team this is all of you can achieve this, <laughs> um, you gain momentum with the team. They come in believing it. There's this idea of confirmation bias that they're biased to believe that they're going to be successful. And I think that's part of it. Um, is that we don't we know that that's an achievable number for everybody on the team. We certainly have had folks that do way more than that. Um, You know, different markets, folks that have been around for a long time, but we think that's fair. And uh, so far it's working. It's been pretty amazing to see this team do what they're doing.
0: So I think there's a couple of things I wanna comment on. You know, you said that they were only doing about three um, per month when you came in and that's pretty consistent. Like when we first go into uh, a new program or provider, like most business development rep teams are severely underperforming. And the expectations have just become really low, right, in the field overall. But I think a big part of that is, like many other areas in treatment, people don't change, adapt, or innovate. They just keep kind of banging their head against the same wall. And so we see that, particularly in the areas of, like you said, just networking with other treatment facilities or just focusing on substance abuse rather than maybe opening up to mental health. Um, but I think it's not just about putting accountability in and making sure you have a good culture and that people are focused on the patient first, but changing and adapting you know, and not just sitting around and hanging around with other business development reps, which everyone still seems to be doing.
1: <laughs> uh, yes. So I, I, my team hears me say all the time that old ways won't open new doors. And uh, we actually had a meeting recently where I asked all the directors. To think about what they were doing, to think about their meetings and how they're sharing up and their schedule. And I said, if you're doing what you were doing six weeks ago, I need you to consider that maybe there's you know something you need to do to innovate. And you know, not you don't want to change for change's sake, um, but are we doing what we've always done because it was established for us, right? So I'm constantly challenged the, challenging the team to do it different. Um, I do think we have a distinct advantage because of the services that we provide. You know, the the, the industry is is Quickly moving away from travel to treatment for a lot of good reasons, and yet there are still some facilities we have at least two in our um, portfolio that that um, warrant travel for treatment, and they're still nationally known programs. And um, you know, I think that's part of it is the portfolio we do. We are able to treat more patients. Um, the I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, but we're constantly trying to innovate. We're constantly trying to um, do things different and, and look at what we've done in the past and do we need to do it anymore? Is that is that important for us? Um, it's a really interesting time to be in this field. So, you know what I mean? Things have changed so significantly just in the last five years, let alone the last 10 years, it's been pretty amazing to see. Um, so you will see, we're gonna see what, you know, kind of what works and, and what doesn't. Kathy and I talk about it all the time because I had an opportunity to work with my boss, Kathy Prosser at, at another company. And we talk all the time about how this is a, is a completely different thing. We, we both, we have different systems and different processes where it's a different company um, and we couldn't run it the way that we were running our other teams. So I, I think it's a really good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we just see it all the time. You know, I you go into a facility and it's like, oh, you know, you still have two or three reps coming in or two or three admissions coming in per rep. It's like, well, this isn't working for you. What are you doing? And why aren't you changing it? You know, and like we'll go and we'll start training the team. Right. And it's a big shift because they've just been doing it one way for so long and, and no one showed them any way that was different. Um, then you'll see, it kind of cracks me up is like, they'll hire more of them. So they're like, well, you know, this isn't working, but let's just hire a bunch of them. And so let's get 40 more or 50 it. reps. Right. So it's like, what's yeah. Going on? Like, yeah. You know, I'd rather train up the team and get them in a place where I'm getting six to eight admissions per business development rep. Right. You know, and only have four of them, than have 40 of them that are underperforming. <laughs> just.
1: Well, and that you've got to have, I really believe that you have to have the right people. Um. And that can be really challenging for leadership to come in and really evaluate your teams and know that you've got the right people in the right positions in the right territories because you're because you're right. Things change. Um, Even the territories change. Uh, The branding can change reputation, like even the online reputation management um, that can change in different markets. So you really have to be agile agile. I've been surprised at how quickly things change and that we have to modify and, and you know look back you know we've started the year by doing our uh, business development strategic plans for each one of the residential facilities and it really struck me as I was going through these to prepare how different each one of the facilities are that we actually have to change our approach to messaging depending on where the facility is who's already been marketing it what the community thinks about it. I mean it's a completely different uh, messaging Depending on the the nine facilities that we have, and um, and that to me, I mean that's really fun, right? To get in there and look at the data and where it's coming from, and um, and then disseminate. Okay, how how are we going to make this successful in in 2020? Um, but you've got to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, it's huge. You know, uh, I mean we've been working on that for a while with you guys. You know, differentiating that messaging, and, and we do that with all of our clients. It's just it has huge returns on it. You know, and I think something that people forget. You know, is your business development team is not operating in isolation. I think sometimes that's how people look at it, right? It's like, oh, there's this person out there, and they're they're getting referrals and admissions. Well, no. You mentioned the online reviews as one example. But there's also all this unspoken, you know, reputation that exists in the communities that you operate in. Um, and if you're not supporting the business development team with marketing and messaging and tools, right, they're not going to be able to perform. It's not just them, like the whole company and the whole marketing engine has to be behind them and supporting them for them to be successful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, um, you know, we're in that position now. I've certainly had, had a different, different, I've been in different situations with marketing where it was the other way around marketing would produce the materials and send out to the business development team and, and then we would utilize those things um and didn't get you know much of a much input um i i had not had the experience the other way which i'm having now which is they really look to us to say what do you need and what's going to be most beneficial and, and there's certainly limitations to, to to you know we can't do everything that the business development team asks for um, shoot we couldn't afford it they want right. <laughs> they want to have right. everything right. with their name and number on it right, right. right. which yeah. i totally yeah. appreciate <laughs> right but uh but it is you've got you know what what i also think is interesting is i've been in a position where the business development team gets all of the credit or all of the blame and and to be honest it's been really nice to, to be in a position here where we've set it up so we we yes marketing is supporting the business development team because we're boots on the ground but at the same time we're there to support the facilities the leadership staff is underneath all of that like it really is they're they're supporting from underneath and the patients are at the top and and that has been a beautiful thing because you 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 make different decisions um as opposed to like you're saying that they you know it's, it can be a struggle to manage a remote team and that's why the culture is so important because that they i i just like my boss needs to trust me as a human being because i don't see her every day we're not in the same city um i need the same trust in, in the folks of the team and the culture is what sets that up
0: yeah, right. So I have a question that you may or may not agree with me on, but one thing that we do when we go in with the business development teams is we don't actually focus on um, the number of admissions per se. So there is an expectation that we're watching and, and tracking those metrics, right? Because that's important. But for the reps themselves, you know, going back to this idea of the company working together, you know, at least the way that we often recommend structuring it the reps aren't the ones taking the admission, right? The call center takes the admissions, they deal with that. So the reps job is to get the referrals in and get quality, you know, qualified, not quality, qualified referrals in. Um, but they can't be responsible for the admission that's on the admissions team to do it. And so we like to talk to the reps about, you know, how many qualified referrals have you sent over and then the admissions, you know, yeah, we'll let you know how many got in there, but we're worried about your referrals more than your admissions because you're not 100 responsible for that right there's all these other factors that go in so i just yeah your thoughts on that
1: no i mean i appreciate that uh viewpoint i do tell the reps their job is to make the phone ring
0: um and i believe that especially when they're struggling with
1: admissions i tell them to stop focusing on admissions because the truth is they i agree with you they only have so much control over that. They have they have some influence, and we talk about influence a lot, but, but they don't have complete control. I, I do believe that if you have a business development representative that understands the process, I think there's an art to being able to navigate, be the quarterback, to be able to navigate a, a client or the referral source or their families through our admissions process, allowing the admission center, the autonomy to do their jobs and be respectful of that, but also setting yourself up so that at any stage of the process um, that they can help, right? They're, they're, they're supposed to. So it's they're, they're kind of holding the hand of the person going through, but the folks that I've seen have had the most success um, can set it up in a way. I've also seen the opposite happen when a business development person holds onto that referral, they don't make a, whether that's fear or they don't know how to pass it off or they just want more input into the actual admissions process. It can really cause, it can really put a wedge in the process. Um, and it can impact the the admission negatively. So I, I do think that they have some influence in that situation.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think the what we run into as a cause of concern is if the rep is responsible solely for the admission and they don't trust the call center team, right? Then then like you said, they hold on to it or they cause problems. And I mean, we've come into facilities where half of the phone calls are BD reps calling the call center, following up on a <laughs> potential right. admission, you know, and so the lines being tied up, the call center is getting annoyed, you know, because they're, they're too concerned about the admission where they should be focused on, you know, connecting with the next referral source or the person that needs treatment. Sir.
1: Well, and that is, it's a very different experience. If you don't have faith in your admissions center team, it changes the the whole experience. Um, it changes your perception of the company and the patient and all of that. So we are really fortunate. Um, the admissions center uh, does an amazing job. It's it's the best, cleanest, easiest process I've, I've ever experienced. Um, and and part of that, again, was the culture change and coming in and setting up very specific goals around admissions and the time it takes to get back to people and whatnot. And um, so what I've noticed is because we have that support from our admissions center, the team is free to run and be creative and do the things that they need to. And if they're in a meeting, they trust our team to be able to, to handle those leads. And I'll tell you, the whole team, the attitude of the whole team, it's it's a, it's a completely different thing than if if they're bringing in frustration and um, so that's been just an amazing thing
0: to see as well because
1: that took a lot of work to get to that point as well
0: right right yeah you guys have a really good call team <laughs> yeah, i
1: agree awesome. i mean i can't even brag on them but they i mean they have blown me away and i fail the time i'm easily pleased and i'm not easily impressed but they are they're good people and they've got the heart for this work and and they're they're doing just an amazing job yeah really
0: yeah absolutely Um, all right, so kind of going back to just some of the more specifics on reps, what's something, what specific things are you looking for in a good, um, business development, community outreach rep, you know, during the hiring process?
1: So I stole this from a next Netflix, um, uh, PowerPoint presentation. I was looking up
0: culture, but. Oh, that's really good. I know what you're talking about. That's a good presentation
1: the do you know the one for about the stunning employees yeah company culture Yeah, yeah
0: it's really good yeah
1: yeah i love it and honestly they said it better than i could so i stole it from them but we look for stunning employees we talk about being like are you a stunning employee but that's what i look for um which for me is that whole environment of having people that inspire you people that um you know not just go above and beyond but you know they're they're have a high degree of emotional intelligence, a high degree of humility, uh, the ability to learn. I mean, somebody who values a high performance culture, um, they value values, frankly. We look for people who are self-starters. They want to grow and learn. Um, the, we look for passionate people as well and people that can hustle. But those are the big things, high emotional intelligence and, and the
0: ability to learn. Nice. What about when you've got someone on board, you said you keep working with people as long as you're seeing progress, but what are some obstacles you've seen reps come across that are maybe somewhat common that you've um, identified and be able to help with?
1: Um, yes and no. Everyone seems to, to kind of show, it shows up different in everybody, right? Obviously, we're looking at, the results are indicative of what's happening, right? So if the results aren't there, we back into it and go, okay, what's going on here? What I have discovered is that in every situation, um, it comes down to influence. So this is a job, it's a very interesting job to me. It's a job about how well you can influence someone who is making a decision to call you when you are not in the room with them. Um, That's a very different job than going in and selling a phone book and having them sign on the dotted line and then making, you know what I mean, taking all the steps from there. So what I've noticed in my years of doing this is that, that there's, the, the difference, I said this before, but the difference between those who are successful and those who are not, to me, um, is often a very subtle difference. You know, it could be as simple as providing too much information about services in a meeting or just subtly changing the overall messaging. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not uh, aware of your audience, right? Um, but at the end of the day, what I've, what I've seen is that it always, if somebody's not performing, it always comes down to lack of influence. So we back into it, we look at, okay, why is that? What in it? And we, we break it down to every piece of the process to try to tease out what that is.
0: That makes sense. Anything specific that you've seen come up or you think it's just, it's been pretty individual to the reps?
1: I think it's individual. I mean, there's certainly things that they have to overcome. Um, but again, I think every, you know, and obstacles or opportunities, I, I see there's usually two main themes. You've got the rap that comes into a territory that's already producing, Um, And that's a challenge in and of itself, because they're coming in on the heels of somebody else, and they've got to manage those relationships. They may be coming in different. There may be history there. Um, So that brings with it a different type of of problem, if you will. And then you've got the opposite end of that would be the rep that's coming into an unestablished territory, where we have very little history. There's very little branding and name recognition. And so they have to overcome that piece as well. and those are the things that I see the most of where people really struggle is to come in. Because even if you're in a territory that's producing and you've got experience, you still have to reestablish yourself as being identified with the new facility, you know what I mean? Overcoming the objections, understanding more what it is that we do. And I think that can be as challenging as, as starting from scratch.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. What are your thoughts on the way that they present the facility? So something we'll see when we're doing ride-alongs with reps is they'll um, really focus on features. You know? So they will go in somewhere and they'll say, hey, we have CBT, DBT, we do a diagnosis, we have a pool individual rooms and they just start listing off. It's like a brochure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, which is something that we're offering working with them to move away from. Right. You know, yes. make a connection with the referral partner, see what's important to them, highlight the parts of your facility that connect with that, but you know, don't just go and, and spout out a bunch of stuff.
1: Well, absolutely. So I had an experience, um, I think I was managing the team at the time, but I had an experience of a, of a clinician who worked inside of a treatment center and and uh, somebody that I knew and he approached me, and he said, "We have had seven different reps come in and present their programs to our facility." And he said, "Amy, I have no idea which patient belongs at which facility." <laughs> and he said, "All of you do the same thing. All of you do CBT and dbt and and you know evidence-based outcome informed treatment, blah, 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 blah. you know. And so, he, he really made me take a step back from it because this is somebody that specializes in it. He works in treatment, right? And so he, it was really helpful for me to share that feedback because when he said it, he said who, you know, who?" he would ask me today, like who is a Promises patient, right? So if he had six facilities in front of them and so, it's there's an art to being able to what i call comparative selling right if i can stand in front of somebody and explain this facility is um you know a uh a substance use um primary facility They 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 have an integrated treatment model right as opposed to a family systems model as opposed to a 12-step model um to be able to differentiate this is a promises patient this is what a promises patient looks like if they walk into your office what you're doing and saying, this is a, you know, this is a foundations patient, this is a talented patient, this is a whoever patient, a caring patient, to be able to really identify those folks. Because if you do that, you're not only, first of all, you're not talking poorly about anybody. Um, everybody has different strengths. And so you're able to educate um, the referral sources in a way to say, you know, um, this is where we send these types of patients because it's in their best interest, right? These are the patients that come to us um, because this is the the, the the tr- this is the best patient for us. And so that's how we actually teach our, our reps. And we're going through that process of teaching our reps. Who is a promises patient? Um, who do we not treat? Those are questions that I don't think we ask enough.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important and something that I constantly see missed in the field, just from a general marketing perspective, much less specifically business development. But you know, people are always saying, well, you know, that question is super important. Who do you serve the best, right? And most people's answers is, well, we serve people that are struggling with addiction. And it's like, well, yeah, now I've got eight reps coming to me all saying the same thing. I, I don't think of you, I don't really know who to refer to. It's like working at a restaurant, right? And I'm marketing for Applebee's versus Burger King. And when I ask you know, who they serve, their response is, well, people who are hungry, like that's a stupid answer. right? I mean, the people that go to Applebee's are very, very different than the go to Red Lobster versus Burger King, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you have to know what kind of people you serve and th- that benefit the most from your services. And when you do that, it's just huge in terms of momentum and traction and bottom line business results because they know who to refer you to. You build up reputations for and among specific demographics and geographies. Like it's just, it compounds in terms of return, especially in competitive and crowded markets, right? If you're the only treatment center for hundred miles, yeah, you don't need to do that. But if you're one of 15, um, it's pretty important.
1: Well, yeah. My whole life I was told pick one thing and do it well. And, and I get very wary of somebody who says we treat everybody. <laughs> Seven to 72, right? Not that there's some providers that that can't do that. Um, but I think that it adds a little more legitimacy when somebody says this is our specialty. This is our niche. This is the patient for us. Um, not that they can't deviate a little bit from that, but... But to me, that's what we should be doing. And frankly, as an industry, that that's what we should be doing. I mean, I talked earlier a, a little bit about the, the idea of abundance versus scarcity. And um, when people are in that space of scarcity, they do want every admission to show up at their door. Um, and, and that is the short game. That is that is not a long-term solution. I mean, that is, it's not good for the patient. and not good for their families. It's not good for the staff. It's not good for outcomes. It's not good for anybody. Um, that admission is not worth... Um, you know, having a patient not have the best experience for it, because um, that could hurt everybody in the long run. So I do think we need to do more of that. I think as we're crawling out of this um, uh, space that we're in, that, that some of that is, is definitely turning around. People are, you know, there was several years ago, we actually got to a place of being able to really, truly make that best decision for the patient. Um, and, and, you know, the hope for me is that we will get back there, that we will know what we do well, and we will be able to easily let go of the patient's not meant for us um, and trust that they will get good care. And, and that, that I believe that's what comes back, you know, two and three times. Um, but it does scare me a little bit to think that there's folks out there that are just putting everybody in their treatment centers, because they've got to hit, hit numbers and metrics. Um, that's not, you know, that, that's, that's, It's irresponsible um, at this point and uh, there's enough facilities and good facilities out there that we should be working together.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. There's just so much value, especially from a clinical standpoint in being able to serve um, a specific individual. And like you said, it's not that you technically can't serve everybody, but you are able to serve certain people so much better as you become an expert in serving that age group or that type of profession or whatever it is. You know, but you're right. I mean, it is hard and I get it. I mean, we go into facilities that are struggling that need to do a turnaround, you know, and for them, they're just trying to stay afloat. And that's a very, very different um, place to be to make decisions from. Right. Versus when you can come from a place of abundance. You know, I mean, we turn clients away all the time. Right. You know, and that's that's a luxury, right? You yeah. know, um, and yes, I can't is. say that we always had that, right. When we first started off, like we do now, because nowadays it's just, you don't know, know what, we don't want to work with you guys. We work with very specific people. Um, and we want to work with you guys, so let's do it. And if we don't want to work with the other people who cares, you know, cause we're not in it for the revenue, but we're able, you know, to come from a place of abundance, which is nice, I guess. Sure.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that is a gift right there. Cause not, you're right. Not everybody has that. Um, and again, I think when you have different offerings, you know, it's different to work for one, one facility and represent that one facility in a market as opposed to, you know, having um, nine facilities across several states that have all kinds of different programs. Um, I work with programs that were more limited and there was a limited number of, of patients that they could take and, a, you know, limited amount of mental health they could treat, you, you know, and that does change, change it when you do have trust and faith that you can do more, especially for the mental health component we can certainly treat more, you know, we're a trauma-based uh, facility, that's that a lot, most of the work we do, it, it comes from a trauma-based model or trauma perspective. And so, um, it is different when you approach it from that, from that perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think you're just able to serve people better, you know, I mean, luckily I'm the business owner, right? So I, I get to make decisions that not everyone else always gets to make, but you know, it allows me to really kind of focus on quality and I'm not focused on growth all the time, right? You know, yes, we could make more revenue, but one, that's not the end goal, or at the end goal is to improve the field of treatment. And so that's more what I'm focused on. But two, also like I know, and I think really smart business owners know that, you know, to your point, if you take on people that aren't a good fit for you or that's not necessarily your area of expertise, it will hurt you in the long run. So, sure, you, you made some short-term revenue gains, but then whether it affects your reputation or whether it affects the way that, you know, this patient goes into a facility and then makes the other 20 patients they're upset and you lose five instead of gaining one, <laughs> you know, it's too yeah. short-term. Um, yeah.
1: And no. that's a tough call. You know, we, we've got to rely on the facilities to do that. And I know for most business builder reps, that can be a source of frustration, right? They want all their patients to, to come in because um, they're driven to that. So we have, we have those conversations um, that, you know, if it's not meant to be, um, then the graceful thing to do is to, you know, is to, is to move on and, um, and trust that there's another option for them, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's an interesting time um, to be in this, uh, and you know, for us, it's really fun right now because I have been on the other side of it with the stress and the numbers and the you know, and, and we're not where we need to be, and um, and nobody wants to be in that position. Uh, it's been really fun to to be. It reminds me of the beginning of my career when I when I was so excited to be in the industry and there was just so much hope and promise in front of me and I was just so so grateful. Um, that I had an opportunity to get up every day and do something that I felt like had meaning in my life. Um, and what's really cool is that I feel like this company, again, they are—you were talking about growth and um, and revenue. And the the senior, we've just rebuilt our whole senior management team, and um, they they just want to build something great because I, I'm convinced that if you build something great and you do your best work, that the money comes. It, it always has, at least in my life. But if you put it first, that's when everything gets really messy. Um, so I feel like we're in that space, you know, there's a lot of momentum, there's so much positive energy, there's you know, the potential of new programs and, and more beds and all of those things happening right now. And it's, been, it's just been really fun.
0: Absolutely, that's great. So I think last question related to the business development piece is just training. What, what does training look for, like for you guys, whether it's you know, initially when they're starting or ongoing?
1: Yeah, so we're we're in the process of creating a new onboarding process, but you know, in, in general, my preference is that the reps spend a substantial amount of time at the facility, um, because that to me they they really have to be invested in that. So they go to the facility, they meet with the staff, they sit in groups, um, if possible, um, they sit in on staffing, um, and and I like you know we're one of the things that we're doing this year is continuing to make sure that the relationship between the reps and the facility staff is strong. Because I think that um, makes a huge difference in the way things are communicated and, the, and they um, support um, back and forth between those two. Plus, they do a lot of co-marketing together. So um, uh, so that's a piece of it to spend time there to really understand the admissions process and what what that looks like. I think the most effective training, um, and this is one of the things that that you've helped uh, me realize, is really getting the, the reps in the field as soon as possible. Um we, we want them to spend time with successful reps. I want them to t- spend time on um, doing field rides with their their direct supervisor. Um, it's really, that's how they're going to learn and, and understand the day-to-day nuances of the job. So, it, you know, it's a lot to learn, frankly. Um, so, so if we can have them in as soon as possible, um, And honestly, we prepare them for what they can answer and what they can't answer, right? Like if you prepare them well enough, it's not going to damage a relationship. I I truly believe that if you trust your team to jump in right away, it builds confidence and instills trust.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You know, and and that's a challenge too, like, you know, because when we go in and install like an onboarding process for a BD team or whatever, like, you know, someone doesn't want to pay us to be there three or four weeks, you know, so we do the training first and then we'll do some ride-alongs mixed in there. But Ideally, just like you're saying, what you really want to do is you want to throw them in the field, then come back, assess, do some training, put them in the field. Like the ability to do it in a live setting and practice it. One, reps like to move around anyway, like they hate sitting in a room all day. (laughs) Yeah, they (laughs) do. But two, you know, it's just, yeah, so valuable because you can apply what you're learning and you can, you know, kind of put it into action right away. Yeah. And something else that I love that you guys are doing, too, and something that we're always pushing is making sure that they are in the facilities and watching the clinical programs and taking part in groups and staffing because, how can you recommend your program if you don't really understand it, right? And that's really the only way to understand what your differentiators are is to see it in action.
1: Absolutely, I also think it helps with objection. So I can't tell you how many times that I, I was called by a referral source that said something like, oh, you, you know, they, 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 they made a statement or they had a complaint with me about somehow um, how their, their uh, client was treated. And had I not known how our staff handled those things, I, I couldn't just say, you know what, that's actually not our process. That's not our policy. You know, we wouldn't have somebody and smoking pot and then have them graduate the next day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, that. we wouldn't give them a, a completion of treatment. That's just not who we are, right? Um, which sounds like a logical statement. But I've had some people call me and say, Oh, you're never gonna believe that what your staff did today. Um, and so, you know, we go through that thing. Everybody wants to be the hero, right? And the, and the business development reps get those calls. And so, for them to be able to say, you know what, I, I, I know this team and I've sat with them. And, you know, if we have somebody in this situation, this is how we handle it. Um, and to be able to, to not re- react to it, but really respond um, appropriately and de escalate it, I think it helps with that tremendously because um, they get those
0: calls. Yeah. I completely agree. So Amy, fantastic information. I I wish you definitely continued success in the role. I mean, you've done amazing so far. If people wanted to reach out to you or connect with promises, what's the best way to do that? Yeah,
1: they can reach me um, through email at amy.wilson at promises.com. And I always have my cell phone on me. So um, if anybody wants to reach out on my cell phone number, my number is 678-907. 0734.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on and looking forward to staying connected and helping Promises move forward. Thank you so much,
1: Nick. I appreciate it. You have a good day.